Hello, happy election day. Welcome to WNHHFM's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. We're lucky today that it's election day. Because it's election day, we're able to have in a studio today someone who otherwise would be busy at work, at school, but there's no school today. We're very fortunate today to have Dr. Jonathan Berryman in the studio. Dr. Jonathan Berryman is the assistant principal, the new assistant principal at Hill House High School. He's the founding director of New Haven's Heritage Chorale. He has overseen the music performed Sunday morning at a whole bunch of different churches in our area. And we're going to find out about what makes him tick, what makes him story, and what how one person who's such a valuable member of our community got to the position he's at today. Good morning, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Good morning, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm going to ask you to get real close to that mic. You almost touched it, but not quite, so that uh, so that we hear you clearly. So how's it going? Uh, you glad to have the day off? Or like you look every morning, you're ready to get up and uh, deal with 500 kids or 800 kids at Hill House? Well, Hill House is almost, uh, we're pushing 1,200. Oh, my we're goodness. Around the Boy, that was off. Mark. Okay. <laughs> with more on the way. But yes, I am glad and delighted to have the day off. It's a much-needed day. Assistant principal is... Uh, what is assistant principals what, what's the main job assistant principals are mostly to make sure kids aren't like going crazy in the hallways or is it to make sure teachers are staying in line or is it teaching well um ultimately is to assist the principal right to do help uh with the management of the school so they're, they're basically four facets that an assistant principal oversees it's you know instructional leadership um trying to make sure that the vision of how students are supposed to achieve is is cast uh, and that there's buy-in to it from all of the stakeholders, administrators, parents, teachers, students, etc. cetera. Uh, working with our teachers, so talent management, making sure that they have what they need to do their jobs well. Organizational management, looking at how schedules are made and how the budget is spent in support of the entire organization. And then cult- culture and climate making sure that there's an equitable approach to how we work with all stakeholders. So when I, wh- what's the day like? Like you spend most of the day in the office, you're spending in the classroom, you're spending the halls and lunchroom? So the day varies. Um, certainly at, at Hill House, the day goes very quickly. We start at 7. And, and seven? Yes. So administ- See, I feel so bad for the teenagers because of their biological clocks. When I was a teenager, 7 was like a tragic moment of the day. But like 11 at night, you're just getting going. And I know this thing about like how dark it is, the kids waiting in the bus and the, the teenagers have sports. But don't you think we should be starting the day later for the teenagers? Or what do you see at 7 in the morning? Are they conscious? Uh, no. <laughs> so 7 is early. So the, the door is open at 7. Classes start at 7.30. Uh, the day is over at 2. Uh, and and we, I believe there are studies that show that, yes, high school students should start school later, uh, but we would have to have buy-in from all of the sports teams and sporting events and things that happen after school in order to make that possible. Now, you were accused of being a conservative on the way in. The conservatives usually say, oh, that's wimpy liberal stuff. Make the kids get up. I had to in my age. And then the other side says, don't we want to optimize when kids are going to be at peak performance, right? And when everybody's at peak performance, right? Being being somewhere at seven o'clock in the morning for um, most of the people I know is something we learn to do, mm-hmm. not necessarily something we look forward to doing. You know, assistant principal when I was growing up a million years ago was sort of a, a joke trope. 
which was sort of like it usually need in those days the stereotype was that it was a male who could basically not be stuck in an office like the principal and make sure kids aren't getting in fights and i remember realizing it was so much more than that when i was in seventh grade i'd written an article school paper about a concert i went to and it turned out mr demarco who was this his principal was this really sweet guy he's there in the lunchroom and he started, he had read the article and told me about different music he liked and not and how much he loved Jim Croce. And we had a big argument because I was a snotty seventh grader who thought Jim Croce wasn't good. I think I was wrong about that in retrospect. I guess what I'm getting at is you're a musician. How does music and, and soul play into the role of an assistant principal like Mr. DeMarco? Uh, so I think many of us, uh, the music we listen to has great sway on us. Right, so we probably remember song lyrics better than we remember philosophies. Darn straight. So song lyrics become our theories. Right, more money, more problems. Is that is that real? We know that <laughs> lie, but you know, and I don't believe that that's the case. But it certainly is a a well known lyric. Well, sort of like discuss. There are a lot of nuances to that question. Out there, more are. money than what? More money than if you don't have enough to eat, that's not a problem, right? More money than you know what to do with, that's a problem. No. So, uh, song, <laughs> I know for me as a musician, you know, there are, all, there are lots of song lyrics that, that uh, run through my mind, certainly from my uh, uh, Christian background. Uh, many song lyrics that kind of govern how I operate in general. Um, so, so mu music definitely has a sway in me as an assistant principal. And what about the way music keeps us going? You remember in high school how crucial music was to our lives? It was sort of our identity, how we related to other people. And it's not just like poetry being recited, although that could be meaningful too. There's something about the combination with beat or melody or harmony that kind of is in your head that propels you, don't you think? Whether it's something that enables you to keep going or gives you a framework in which to operate. Well, absolutely. Uh, so as I look at, think about the concepts of music themselves, beat, rhythm, uh, melody, harmony, form, tone, color, and then expression, all of those things are, are musical elements or concepts, but they also are uh, concepts through which we can govern our own activities. So, so moving, how we move, how we sing, how the uh, pattern of our speech, all of those things are functions of music. So yes, there are there are some things that I deliberately do, and I know I'm doing to achieve certain effects with certain students. Can you have an example of that? We won't blow any individuals' identities. Well, uh, you know uh, how you say something, right? Uh, how we approach people makes a big difference. Uh, so when people are coming in in the morning, I usually, you know, I'll, how I say good morning, you know, I don't grunt. Somebody good morning, morning. right? It's never a grunt. <laughs> It's always at a certain certain pitch, at a certain speed. You know, it's good to see you. Glad you're here. So they're, they're inflections that I know are deliberate uh, because I really want to uh, help students have a great day. How about in terms of talking about music literally with children? Is that ever, I mean, students, is that ever a bridge? Uh, only on occasion. So, I've, you know, we have some students who go, <coughs> excuse me, to ECA. So we've talked about the instruments they play and what they're working on and whether or not they would be willing to do something uh, at Hill House since they are talented musicians. Oh. 
And, and is uh, it an example of something you made happen like that? Not yet. But there will be because you're just getting started. Well, just getting started. And at, at some point, it would be great for Hill House to have a choir because we don't have one. Mm. And with 1,150-some-odd students, I said, even if only 10% of them joined the choir, that would still be tremendous. That'd be wonderful. Exactly. All right. Dr. Jonathan Berryman is the assistant principal of the house. We're talking about how music fit in because his life has been a career, a musical journey. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes. And um, you, got, you grew up in Richmond, Virginia in a musical family. You played instruments and sang in church. Your dad was a minister. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you how far back in your life you remember saying, oh, music's my thing. There's something special going on here. I got a role to play in this. This can be a part of my life. And ironically, I don't ever remember saying that. Because it always was true from the beginning. So when something is so ingrained in your life, I don't think you, uh, well, I don't think people think about it because it's just, you've just never, you've always had it, right? Um so because the family, I was born into people who sang, right? So family, there was always singing. There was always music. It was just a part of, of my domain. It's just always there. Big family, small family? Uh, both of my parents are one of nine children. So, and my father's the old, uh, youngest of nine. My mother's the oldest of nine. So big family, wide range um, of ages. So my parents were 40 when I was born. Um, so, a, lot, a lot of siblings? I'm the youngest of five. So were these people all around the house a lot? Were aunts and uncles around, cousins? So during holidays, yes. Um, holidays and family reunions. So I, I, I always knew my extended family. And whenever we would get together, it didn't matter whether it was my mother's side or my father's side, there was always singing. And tell me about that. Spontaneous singing, group singing, singing at the table, singing where you would like work out parts. What, 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 oh, the- oh, yeah. Oh, so... so it, Everybody knew their part. Um, mm. So, <laughs> I, and, and I'm thinking about the, my, the older generations. So my mother's side of the family, my mother's the oldest of that group, so that her siblings grew up singing uh, soul music, you know, uh, uh, music from the 60s, music from the 70s. So there were songs that, that they had sung together before I was born. What would be some examples? Oh, let me see. Uh, you Can't Hurry Love. Well, and, and, and my, one of my aunts and uncles uh, did the duet on uh, Come Ye Disconsolate, which I think was a remake back in the 1970s. Hmm. Um, and I said, oh, this is interesting. So, I mean, they, they, had a singing, they had singing careers before I was even born. Do you remember a particular song in your head that you saw being sung or that you participated in at the house that you loved? That's a special memory, a special moment. Uh, so, like I said, with a strong Christian background, usually there was some singing of a hymn somewhere. Uh, I know my, my mother's brother, um, my uncle Rudy, took What a Fellowship, which is a, a traditional Baptist hymn. Oh, and turned what it in. a fellowship. What oh, a jo- yes. what a joy. He turned divine. it into What a... Oh, is that Everlasting Arm? Yep, that's it. Yeah. He turned it into What a Family Ship. Oh, at one of our family reunions. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Uh, so, so that title kind of uh, stuck. I love "Everlasting Arm." That's a great song. But uh, you, but you also study music seriously. I mean, you and you play. How, like, how young were you when you started playing instruments? So uh, I was eight years old when I started playing the viola. Mm-hmm. 
And, and the viola's interesting because not as many kids pick up the viola, right? So they always need you in the combo, right? And that that's how it started. My oldest sister wanted to play the violin, and the strings teacher convinced her to play the viola. Oh. So all five of us played the viola. Oh, so it's the conspiracy music teachers who know they don't have enough people for that seat. So all five of us, all, all um, my four siblings and I played the viola uh, all the way through high school. What do you think about the viola? Do you still play? Uh, you do not want to hear me play the viola. Because what I wonder about viola, I wonder if it's something a little bit more soulful than the violin. It's got a little bit of a deeper tone. It a does. richer tone, and it's not quite as high, but it's not a bass. It's melody, right, but melody with a little more bass and a little more heart in it, or no? Well, it is Less a deep, showy. It, it's a deeper sound. Uh, it's a very versatile instrument. Uh, uh, and I had a, a housemate at one point who uh, majored, it, who earned his master's degree in viola, and, it, and when he played it, it was beautiful. It was never beautiful when I played it. I was functional. But you played other instruments? Yes. What'd you play? Uh, piano and pipe organ. All right. In church? Yes. But somehow you got to Princeton, you had a musical degree. So you must have been pretty heavy duty in musical theory and all that, like diatonic scales and all that. Sure. So all you know, I took private lessons uh, from the time I was 10, uh, uh, piano lessons, and then switched to organ lessons. Um, like I said, because this, this was just a part of my life, it was just something I thought was just normal for everybody um so the music theory was always there the formal reading of music uh was always there uh and then because of my father the church my father pastored which was a church that was in the country though it was not a country church what does that mean um so it, it was located in a in in um a i guess it's it's yeah, farmland Right, farmland around it. The church has farm, a lot of farmland around Where it. Where was the name of the town? It was uh, St. John Baptist Church in Erutha Glen, Virginia. Uh -huh. So, but what's interesting is that it was that that the people from that area worked in D.C. Oh, right. So it's a, it is now a suburb of D.C. Though it's forty minutes, forty miles outside of D.C. And so by it not be a country church, because the people there, the style of worship, was he not fire and brimstone? Was it more refined and intellectual? or It had air conditioning. Oh, okay, there you go. It was, it was, a, it was, made, it was a brick church with air conditioning. Oh, okay. Uh, for the bougie people who used to be farmers, oh. uh, who now farmed, who farmed out of habit, but who were now big wigs in in D.C. Oh. government and college professors and all of those things. They'd grown up there. They'd grown up on farms. But then uh, they'd gone away to school and earned degrees and uh, had become very uh, sophisticated. And so did you play in bands in high school? Did, was there any kind of music you remember that was your favorite music? Or did you perform much outside of church? Um, I played in the school orchestra, like I said, all the way through high school. And, and, and church itself was eclectic. Right, because when so in in terms of, uh, so the organ lessons I took were very formal. You know, I learned how to play Bach and Mendelssohn and Buxtehude and um, Longley and Franck and and all of these things that happened in churches that weren't mine. Mm -hmm. uh, in my home church, yes, you had to play 
Bach and Handel, but you also had to play the blues and and gospel and um, uh, all the kind of the the and then it was traditional gospel and then now modern gospel, right? Contemporary gospel, which would could one argue that gospel has a lot of pop in it? Well, it does. Yeah. So so the in in the church that I grew up in, the styles. It, it, Music encompassed a whole variety of genres, though it was all in a Christian way. And were you soaring when you were in church playing? Did it feel like you were ascending? Was it beautiful for you? Was it meaningful? Absolutely. Um, you know, so, so that's why I said being, you know, working with people, because it wasn't just me, right? So, so being with musical people made a huge difference. So even in my home church where I grew up, and, and I reflect on this now uh, about how special that place was because we had five or six music teachers on staff, <laughs> which, w- which to me was normal. But now I understand that is completely uh, unusual. Uh, and two of those music teachers were, were, two, uh, were first. They were uh, some of the first black music teachers that Richmond, Virginia hired. In their schools. In the school system. Well, that's interesting given where your life went. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I didn't did know that. What did you think about Oh, you didn't know that at the time? I, I didn't know that at the time. They were, they were retired when I was born. Mm-hmm. So something happened you decided when you had decided about what life trajectory you were going to pursue, that you were going to college to, to Princeton to study music. How did that decision come about? What did you envision your life unfolding as in that way? So I originally went to Princeton to study economics. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to declare a major until the end of your sophomore year. So I did uh, the prerequisites for economics and the prerequisites for music. Uh, and it was in the second semester of my sophomore year that I realized I really didn't care about consumption functions and uh, spending functions and, and liquidity curves and and where, where they aligned or where they shifted or the shape of them. I said, I don't want to do this. <laughs> uh, so, so music became my choice, and I've never regretted it. And you have a comment here. I think it's from Kel Green. Hey, big bro, you have to figure that heaven has air conditioning compared to that other place. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Thanks for listening, Kel, on that one. Well, I would sometimes say... Uh, I, I, I might be on the unair conditioned side of heaven, but I'm definitely not going to hell. <laughs> That's good. Well, you are going to w- <laughs> NHHFM's Dateline New Haven, which is where you are right now. It's a little warm in the studio. Sorry about that. And we're at 103.5M live stream New Haven Independent. We're talking to Dr. Jonathan Berryman, the assistant principal at, at Hill House, and for more than two decades, well more than two decades, a real force in community music in New Haven, whether it's teaching in the classroom, starting the Heritage Chorale, a Sunday morning directing church, Choirs. So you came to New Haven to get a Yale graduate degree in choral conducting, correct? Is that the Yale School of Music? Yes. And was that after the point at which a, a benefactor had paid the full freight for tuition, or did you come before that? I came before that. Oh, bummer. When oh. that happened, I thought, my goodness. Well, I went through the Institute of Sacred Music, uh-huh. uh, which already had money. Oh, nice. So tuition was paid. Yay. And you played at Sprague Hall before it was renovated, right? Yes, I remember Sprague before it was been. Because uh, yeah, the sound there's yeah. pretty incredible, isn't it? So what was that next step? Tell me about the decision that you wanted to go into choral conducting and that you wanted an advanced degree to do that. 
So after I decided to major in music at Princeton, I, well, while, while at Princeton, I was working in Philadelphia at Monumental Baptist Church as their... So you'd uh, go on the weekend from the Ivy League back into the church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And wh- wh- why did you do that? Uh, so before I left Richmond, Virginia to go to Princeton, I already had the job. Oh, okay. Um, through Connections, right? So the minister of music I worked for in, in Richmond knew the, the pastor of the church that I, I, was, I started playing for in Philadelphia. So when you came to New Haven, what was it like being making that transition? What was it like coming to New Haven to be at the Institute for Sacred Music? So there are multiple answers there. Uh, it, uh, at the time, I think uh, Yale had deferred maintenance on its buildings. Yes, <laughs> especially the music buildings, yeah. yeah. So coming from Princeton, where they roll up the old grass and roll out the new, uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, flowers stay in the garden for a week, and then they pull them up and, and put new ones in just to change, you know, the ambiance. Um, coming to Yale was an, uh, an aesthetic challenge in terms of the infrastructure. In terms of the education, it was perfectly fine. And what about New Haven as a city? Did you bond quickly? Did you feel a part of this place? What did you think of New Haven when you came here? Um I, when I first came to New, T- New Haven, I said, oh, my God, the whole city is the ghetto. Really? Yes. So remember, downtown, the, the biggest thing downtown was the tattoo shop. Uh-huh. And that um, was new at the time. You came early 90s? 1994. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that had the biggest marquee, tattoo. Um, and every bar was a dive. <laughs> I said, what is going on here? The mall was just about defunct, mm-hmm. right? So um, Macy's was long since gone. Whatever glory of the mall there was had departed. Actually, Macy's had closed only a year before you came, and the department store next to it had closed before that. G5, uh, uh, um, Halix, yeah. And the mall had closed, and now they were trying to keep it up with, like, single vendors and, like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, that was our moment of truth, deciding what do we want to be as a city. We were going to continue trying to chase the suburban dream and transplant it in an urban environment, or do we want to go with what makes us different and special and the people who are here? Yeah. So New Haven was, uh, you know, coming from Princeton, you know, uh, where Nassau Street is, is this string of lovely high-end shops, and you're surrounded, <laughs> you know... Uh, <laughs> That's true. You came at the at the bottom of the retail moment in New Haven. <laughs> so it was, you know, there was a culture shock in in that regard. Um, and then, of course, once I I started working in in churches in New Haven itself, I got to see the real New Haven, uh, which if you're in the Yale bubble, you know, you really well. That reminds to me see. too. When you say that, it reminds me like. I always have to stop and think when you say things like that because I've always loved New Haven so much and it's been through these periods of feast and famine, but it really has to do with the kind of people and institutions who are here and the neighborhoods and the diversity of the people here and the way everybody dreams of something big. And it's not for me whether there's an outlet of Urban Outfitters, you know, or, or a kind of $20 cocktail bar. Right. And all, all but all those of, have come. And, and they needed to uh, uh, in order for for I think Yale to attract and to retain talent, people had to see themselves in uh, living in this city. Um, and, 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 it, and it was, now let me be very clear, the people weren't ghetto, right. the infrastructure was. Yeah. So when I got out of the Yale bubble and encountered uh, the people of New Haven, I found a whole bunch of 
uh, of what we would now call bougie people. If they didn't call it back then, we were just they were just middle class, right? Now, you know, with those kinds of standards, you're bougie. When you're the first uh, first person to hold a black person to hold a position, when you are uh, these people who you know, SNET was they they were managers in SNET. They were that's back. We had the phone company. That was right. a great place to. A they lot were high-ranking people, people in the black community. In, got good jobs there. In the jobs they had, long-time workers in in in. Uh, Repeating arms and all of the factors that were around. Now it's Yale and Yale New Haven. Right. That's why I said so. So the real New Haven I discovered as as a phenomenal place, um, with a with a long history, both connected to the South and connected to uh, the institutions building building the institutions that now exist here in New Haven. So you stayed, obviously. Why did you stay? Because of that. Did you like the community, or did you get a good gig? What was the, what kept you in New Haven? Well, employment first, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I started. Uh, I was uh, the minister of music at Varick Amy Zion Church. Okay, uh, was that where Reverend Cleveland? Who Thornhill was? was there, but uh, but I was hired under uh, Lester McCorn. Oh, he was next. Okay, and that was that's the church that was a stop on the Underground Railroad, one of the oldest churches in New Haven on on Dixwell. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was working at Varick, and and uh, Varick wanted to keep me when I graduated. So they made it uh, financially appealing to do so. And then I and I also started teaching uh, full time in the school system. You went to co-op first, right? So I taught at co-op part time, and it was there that I um, was inspired to go into public school teaching. So I was certified to teach, and then my first teaching job was actually in Bridgeport. And tell me about teaching. What did you find? Was that a transition going from the church to the classroom? Absolutely. And what was that transition? Tell me about a day when you said this is different. Uh, <laughs> I vividly remember a girl trying to do another girl's hair in, in the rehearsal in the mm. class. I was like, what are you doing? I'm about to wrap her hair. I was like, that is not what we do in rehearsal. Uh, oh. It's a little bit like those movies where the teacher has everyone take stuff seriously that they didn't before, and then they become really good at it. Like, did that become a great ensemble no half of them were put out <laughs> quiet so what what it, and so what surprised me about new the the disconnect between church and school for me was the discipline that the people i worked with uh, worked with in church had and the not i wouldn't even say the lack of discipline the ones in school had but the the fact that i don't think they had ever really been exposed to what Choirs are really supposed to do. And is it true? Did you see it affect the kids that when they took it seriously, and they saw that they could be part of a broader voice, and you could really soar? Did that? Did you see any kids that made a real difference in their lives? How they saw themselves? How they felt otherwise? Well, yes, and I, I've seen it more and more over the years. Uh, that that it is critical that we give students the skills they need to be independent. Uh, in whatever discipline we teach. Um, so so part of the hallmark of my music teaching career has been making literate musicians. Yes, you have to learn to read the notes. Yes, you have to learn to um, uh, play music for yourself. Um, trying to, you know, so creating independent thinkers is really the role of all teachers. But certainly as, as a music teacher, where you want students to find their own voice, you have to equip them to do that and how do you do that 
Besides telling me you can't weave hair during uh, rehearsal. Well, you, I think you, you start with understanding who they are, what they don't know, uh, and then you, you chart a course for um, figuring out, based on who they are, how to best set them up to learn what they need to know. And I'll, just, I'll admit, without revealing any sources, that I've been told that you are the gold standard for directing uh, church choirs Ooh. and that it's very hard to find right now people to do that who are good at it and that basically whoever gets Jonathan Berryman's lucky and that you've kind of gone a bunch of places. Have you done the churches? I've had that conversation. Um, have you had worked steadily on Sundays and church choirs since you got here? Yes. And where you went to Emmanuel Baptist after Varick? Yes. And where you go? Where are you now? So now I am at Messiah Baptist Church in Bridgeport, where I've been for the past seventeen years. Seventeen, okay. And why that one? Why not here in New Haven? So when I started teaching in Bridgeport, I met uh, people who are members of Messiah. Um, and and I would also go to the Hampton Ministers Conference. Um, where Messiah was in some of their musicians. So I met, I met people from Messiah prior to uh, their even needing a musician. So it, in 2006, um, I got a phone call saying they were looking. Um, and eventually we started talking about what they wanted and what what the opportunity was, and and it was a great match. Is there a secret to the strategy of making a church choir and backup ensemble work? Do you have anything you do specifically that makes it happen? Um, well, I think anywhere, and, and once again, you know, it, it is, it's about being where you are supposed to be, right? So, so God makes a way for things to happen the way they're supposed to happen. That that whether it's in the school system or or in church, um, it really is about being in tune with with what's happening. Who are the people? You know, what do they need to hear? Um, based on what you have, how do you how do you utilize that to its best? And then how do you find the people who aren't here who probably need to be here? There's one uh, rabbi, ancient rabbis, who wrote about the role of music and prayer. He says when you start talking to God or looking in your soul, you're saying words, and then you're adding the melody to get higher and get deeper into it. Then you're stopping, you're chanting after a little while because it's not really the meaning of the words that matters. It's the way the sound goes to the music that lifts your soul and that eventually you stop with the, any kind of language word. You're just in the music, and mm -hmm. that's sort of how you get closest to God, and that's how you send the highest. I don't know if that's a... <laughs> well, it's, it's all striving for authenticity, right? So it is not form or fashion as much as it, as it is connection. So while you were teaching, and you kind of, when did you come back to New Haven to teach? So I, I w was in Bridgeport for a year and a half. Oh, that's not long. Okay. 1996 to the beginning of 1998, and I've been in New Haven ever since January 1998. And then you added a third stool to all this work you do which is that in 2005 you founded and directed the Heritage Chorale, which is a totally different kind of musical creature, correct? Or is it not? So, uh, founded in 1998. Oh, 98, uh, sorry. Um, yeah. And it was, well, it, it's not that different. 
uh, because well, a lot what of, is the Heritage Chorale? It's a community chorus. It's a community choir. Uh, it's really dedicated to keeping the uh, the the history of African American music, particularly church music, alive and well, and and audible and accessible um, to audiences. So uh, m- many of our members, especially at the founding, were already singing and they had sung together before in in choirs. Uh, they were active in their church choirs. So really, it was. Uh, almost a, a, an extension of the church choir, but from multiple churches. And so that's still going on today. That was, what are we now, 25 years? Huh? 26. So and wh- how often does it practice? How often do you perform? So we started rehearsing again this past spring because, you know, during COVID, uh, nobody was really gathering like that. Uh, and we're working on on what our next steps are. So we're rehearsing, yes, singing. We're also talking with Dixwell Congregational Church about planning some community-based workshops really centered around rebuilding the choir mm-hmm. uh, and intergenerationally because most of us started singing in choirs as children, and now many churches don't even have a children's choir. Really? So New Haven has approximately 20,000 school children. I said, and it just makes sense to provide somewhere um, outside of schools uh, for them to sing it within community. So, is, so does the Harris Control have a, a youth choir? No. But it is, so it is time to rethink our model about what, what do we need to do to maintain our mission. And are church choirs, do they skew older? Yes. So you're working on a mission, is it fair to say you're on a mission to bring a new generation into choral music? Well, to bring a new generation in and to understand what that means. So uh, the factory model of living where people work nine to five made it possible for people to every Tuesday night, let's say, have a rehearsal from six to seven. Well, that's before we were bowling alone, right? We had dinner and then we went, did something. Civic. All right. So but now in the land, uh, everybody has a side hustle. I'm dri- I'm an Uber driver. I'm a Lyft driver. Uh, I'm I'm. I have a, a full-time job, a part-time job, uh, my own side business. You know, how do we make time for people to rehearse? What is so even rethinking what that now looks like? So what does it look like? Like how in the world do you get all these people's schedules together, and we're not all in the factory model? Um, well, and I think it is that that you have to you have to craft that time. But we also in the digital age where uh, I've I've started sending parts. You know, no, learn your music before you get here. That idea of coming to rehearsal to learn music, that is over. That's dead. And is that because of how hard it is to arrange the time? Uh, well, but also because it's no longer necessary, mm. right? If, you know, you can go on YouTube and learn all the entire Messiah. And, you know, learn your part. Here's the score. Here, here's somebody singing it. It's following along, almost like the follow the bouncing note. Found bouncing ball, rather, which was before my time. Uh, um, so how are we utilizing technology to bridge the gap to make sure that, that people who are, do have side hustles are not spending a whole lot of time in rehearsal trying to learn music but they're coming to rehearsal make to the rehearsals count a little more right to perfect the music everybody knows their part the only reason we should come to rehearsal is so that we know how we're singing it together and it sounds to me if I don't want to tell you this overstating it that that's part of what you're thinking in terms of getting a choir going at Hill House sort of like get people singing choral music 
and have it be something they're familiar with? Because people don't go to church as much as they used to, right? No. <clears throat> uh, and with, with Google, Google Classroom, um, you know, it's the same deal. Here are the parts. If you're singing soprano, alto, tenor, bass, here are all the parts. Here's the music. Come to rehearsal with this stuff learned. And of course, you know, we've seen that spread throughout music where people, you know, playing for change, you know, those videos where people all over the world to do a song, you know, like The Weight or something. You see someone who does percussion in Kenya and someone who does like uh, um, Mexican music and someone who does American pop music or blues and they'll all be playing a different part together. They do it from different locations. Stars during the pandemic. Exactly. So I wonder, and a lot more collaboration takes place over the web. Are we losing anything or am I just being an old fogey just not? understanding things just change it's not better or worse it's just the weather changes technology changes us when we're not facing each other sitting together as much when we're collaborating so you know being face to face has its merits and right? hearing what the other person's doing sort of feeling it sure i mean all i i, I there's no substitute for for face to face but but the digital also create now gives us opportunity that we didn't have before no question. Uh, you so, can collaborate with many more people all over the world, right, at any time. Exactly. Um, I guess and, what I And miss- that's expected. And yeah. not only all over the world, but so it used to be that if you move from one location to another, you had to leave. If you had a teacher in that town, you had to leave your teacher. Mm. That's no longer the case. So I don't mean to be an old fogey. I'm just remembering that feeling when you're jamming with someone. It's not just looking in their face. You're feeling what they're coming up with. There's an unspoken communication in music when you kind of get in a flow when you're making room for each other to ride with an idea and playing off each other's sounds. Uh, I guess, are we lo- going to lose that or can that? Oh, no. I think, if anything, we, we're able to, to maximize that because I can send you what I'm thinking ahead of the rehearsal. Mm. So you can have some time to say, hmm, what can I do there? So I can go deeper into the other I, person's ideas before deciding how to roll with it. Yeah, you can have a yay or a nay. So you know what I listen to. I love, I love your optimism. You know, we always when we have technological change, we always focus on what we're losing rather than what we're gaining. I think you got a great positive spirit on that. And we're talking about that with Dr. Jonathan Berryman, who's a assistant principal at Hill House for over uh, for more than two decades, teaching music in New Haven, doing community music, founding the Heritage Chorale, Sunday choirs. So you made a big jump this year. Mm-hmm. So you were a teacher in all these classrooms you were at, uh, Fairhaven School, Betsy Ross, Barnard. Um, in addition to teaching music, you were the climate leader at Barnard. So you were getting deeper, and you got invo- you were vice president of your union. Mm-hmm. So you got deep into education. Yes. What made you want to make that fateful step upstairs to being an administrator and being an assistant principal of a high school? Um, so I've, I've been the beneficiary of having great administrators. Uh, from my childhood on through my teaching career. Uh, and one day I looked up and I said, based on how generations are shaping out, I, I am in the older generations. So all the people that I, I uh, grew up with who were my administrators, they've retired. Right? So, so in, in thinking about the natural order of things, I said, I am part of the bridge generation, the ones, uh, one, that generation that bridges what was before and that helps those who are coming along uh, understand how to make it. Uh, so for me, going into administration has been more about uh, leveraging what I 
have experienced it and the skill sets that I have to help people to be able to teach for 35 years mm-hmm. and to do it well and comfortably. And boy, you're coming at a tough time for administrators. I mean, we need you. Again, let's not look at the negative, let's look at the positive. What a difference an administrator can make now when people are coming out of COVID, when they didn't have regular schooling and they fell behind, when the emotional distress among children by most measures is a lot higher now. They're just getting through the days a lot harder for kids. Am I looking too much at the negative? Is this a great moment to be in high school? How are you tackling what we're hearing as, as these challenges in this public schools? I think it's all in how you look at it, how you spin it, yes? So I was thinking about this earlier, and, and the 2020s reminds me of the 1970s in terms of where America is, because it's having to make some decisions, mm-hmm. right? So, so we are, uh, when I was very young, in the 1970s, everybody didn't go to college, right? right? Going to co- there were factories still open here in New Haven, so going to having a factory job was still a reality. Some people went to college, some people went to, to right directly into career. Uh, and then now factories here in Connecticut dried up. Uh, but now we're at a time where, where, where that technological piece that allows you to work in uh, the new factories or in the new manufacturing field is coming back. Or, or, even, has plum- come back. or even being a plumber or electrician, you can make really good money. and You can make great money. Career. Yeah. Not even good. You, can make, right. you can make money as long as you're awake. If you can fix an air conditioning or a heating system, if you know plumbing, if you know electrical work, you can make money all day, all night until you, and you fall don't have to asleep. go to college. You need a little training. Uh, and so, while college is an option, we also understand that you know we have many people who have advanced, who have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and the, the most prevalent thing they have is debt that they can't see their way out of. Uh, so, so college didn't always didn't produce this uh, heavenly land that we thought it would either. Uh, so education is now at a point where it's helping, we, we, we are obligated to help students decide what's best for them, right? So getting students college and career ready is the goal. And Hill House has the program, right, for first responders, get them started on a career to being a police officer, a firefighter, correct? Also our manufacturing program. Right, so so the the manufacturing jobs that are available now, are, are, you know, don't have you mining coal, right? They have you working in these in these spaces that really are where the air has to be clean because you're working with, with sophisticated technological uh, uh, um, media where you're assembling things that 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 require precision. Precision uh, manufacturing, and that pays more because it's specialized. Right. Um, so the I gotta tell you, I get a little freaked out when I work in factory. I went into um, Asta Abloy with Hill mm-hmm. and Hardware, and it, it, it shut down for a day, and everything was a robot. The mm-hmm. place was still filled. I mean, most of the work is being done by robots. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a freaky thing, but there's still humans they needed to fix the robots to get the robots working right. But you're saying there's assembly to a precision manufacturing, right? Uh, and and so there are jobs that are available, but they are not like the ones that that used to be in terms of what we thought factory work was. Now it's more, um, uh, you have to be more technologically savvy. Uh, and we have students who have those skills, but we need to make sure that they know those jobs are available and that they start training for them now. So you're seeing that as a big part of your role as a principal thinking about how you're going to gear people to the work that's out there and getting the technological chops they need. 
So I'm gearing a, them to that work and making sure they know those opportunities that they have. And I'm wondering if I got you off track there. You're talking about the comparison of the 1970s. So what kind of inflection point are we at that makes you think of 1970s? So in, 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 in coming out of, um, so in, as I think about the 1970s, I think about those options, right? So, so people had to decide what they were going to do. You know, are you going to the factory or are you going to college? Um, because I, I think there was a major shift in the 80s and the 90s where college, we became so college-centric. In New Haven, we said it, we want to get every kid to college because right. they make more money. Right. We became college-centric, and we forgot about the manufacturing uh, arena. So now we're back there. Well, what about trades? We talked about trades. Well, manufacturing, think? so to me, manufacturing trades, in it, so college is its own thing, but now shifting that focus from trying to push everybody into college to going back to to uh, creating a more balanced workforce where yes some of us want to go to college you need to go to college that whatever you want to do college is required but it's not necessarily um, uh, the direction everybody wants to go even if you want to go it might not be right away you want to go in so I recognize that 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 though I am Dr. Berryman I was a musician first and had I not been a musician, I wouldn't have been able to afford to become those other things. So how are you, on the, and Harry Joseph says, sounds very reasonable, common sense oriented leadership, very needed for today's youth. Thank you. Um, what do you, tell me about it on the ground, hands on, how you're trying to put that philosophy into action as an assistant principal at Hill House? So have I, you taken any particular initiatives? or? So um, we do have, College and career readiness um, mm-hmm. uh, at Hill House. So we, the High Heights program deal is, deals with uh, is helping us to really shape our students' mind around going to college and help even helping them with college tours and and essays and all kinds of things. So so part of the role of the uh, the principal or assistant principal is to really take what Central Office has and to make it work for your building. So Dina Natalino oversees the Office of College College and Career Readiness. So we've been working with her to make sure that Hill House has a mindset that looks at both college and career readiness. What's been your favorite day so far as a Hill House vice principal? I think my favorite day uh, was the day we had community members come in and, and read college essays for our seniors. So uh, Ms. Jeanette Robinson, who's also assist, there are four assistant principals. Jeanette Robinson is one of them. Um, uh, she oversees grade 12, and she really helped. She put together that activity in, con- in conjunction with our counselors and our High Heights program. Um, that was impactful because we were able to get community members to come in and to see in a very tangible way uh, and in a finite way in terms of giving of their time what our high school students were doing. So just creating that volunteer opportunity uh, because I think many people want to help. They want to be a part of, of assisting the next generation to move forward, but uh, it's on the school administration to create some tangible and finite ways for them to do that that's meaningful to them and to the students. Has there been a moment where a student said or did something that blew you away that was very special that surprised you so far? I know you're only a couple of months in. Uh, you know, students say the strangest thing. I think I, I posted on uh, Facebook the other day, the student who said, my hair is bald. 
<laughs> My hair is full. What's that mean? Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> I said, my hair is bald. <laughs> that's that's deep, I think. <laughs> if we know what it is, what it means. And I was trying to envision that. I know what he meant. What do you mean? Right? Because he was saying, he he meant that, it, you know, that he 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 didn't have a lot of hair or whatever. Oh. Da, 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 da. Not but not my not my head is bald. Right. But my hair is bald. I said, gee. Hmm. So I don't know if you, how much you read about other school systems, but in Florida right now, they're banning all phones all day. And in other school systems, I think Arizona, they ban them while you're in class, but they let you have them because there's some kids who like take classes by phone at the intermissions, you know. Do, do you have any feelings about what we should do with phones and social media during the school day, what impact it's having on the kids? So I, um, I have no problem with problems with students having their phones. As long as you get your work done, mm-hmm. right? I suppose that I'm a person, when I sit down to work, I have a computer over here, my phone over here. I'm working on both of them. Uh, so I think it is more uh, about teaching students or anybody to, to manage their time well and to be responsible about how they get things done. Because ultimately, we don't care how you get it done as long as you what get it done. What about distraction? Because you talked about the hair weaving back in the day in Bridgeport. Is there a kind of distraction... Like if you get this choir started, and are you going to start the choir? Is that going to happen in Will Hill House? Uh, we shall see. Will you go? Are they going to be allowed to have their phones on during choir? That's why I said it, it. It. If they're singing, it's okay. It, it. So actually, we sometimes we sing from our phones now. Right. 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 Because the text is there. How do you I, feel about that? When I'm watching a musician perform and their lyrics are right in front of them with the phone. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't like to be the cranky thing shouldn't change, but there's something that you used to have to memorize the lyrics and it kind of had something to do with the performance and you were connecting more with an audience. But that must be rigid. I like the way you're so much more open to the change. When you're performing and you're looking at your phone lyrics, does that get in the way? Or is it just we're evolving not to be able to remember anything because we have our phones remembering everything for us? Well, I think sometimes if you want to hear those words right, you better let them have that, <laughs> have some kind of cheat sheet. <laughs> right? Because even in, you know, whether it was a piece of paper. So I think about, you know, scat, Ella Fitzgerald started scatting when she forgot the words. Oh, really? That's why. <laughs> so, I know the melody. But I don't remember these verses. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that... Uh, you know, uh, and musicians are now reading from tablets, right? So they don't have organ scores anymore in front of them. And with automatic page turn. So and they I think, always had the music on the stand, so that doesn't change, right? Right. So, the, But now they put a tablet on the stand. Right. Uh, and it there's all kinds of software just designed for people who are reading music from these tablets. Any uh, parting words you have for us? It was such a joy to hear your story. I've always admired you and the work you do in New Haven, and I'm just so glad that Election Day they gave you the deal off in Hill House so you could come into the studio at WNHHFM. And I love the optimism that you, you see possibilities. Oh, yeah. Where absolutely. other people see change as a threat. Oh, no. We have more possibilities than anything else. This is a very exciting time, both in our school system and in New Haven. Because? Uh, because I don't. Because we have everything we need. We just have to utilize it well. I think we're gonna close on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Jonathan Berryman. What a joy to have you on Dateline New Haven. Good luck on your work at the house. Good luck at the Heritage Corral. 
Good luck at Messiah Baptist Church year 18. I guess you're in there. And uh, keep it going. You're keeping our, keeping our city moving. Uh, thanks to Harry Droz at the controls, getting us into the multiverse. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Thank you.